Daniel 5 is where we're going to find ourselves today. Daniel chapter 5. Some personal audience participation here for a minute. And by personal, I mean just think yourself in your head. What's the most uncomfortable party or social gathering you've ever been to? Don't share in real life. It's not that kind of meeting. I remember years ago, Kelly and I were doing some music at a wedding of somebody we, we knew. And so we went to the rehearsal and, you know, did all that. I said, well, come to the rehearsal dinner. And it was one of those things where I couldn't get out of it. So we went to the rehearsal dinner. And uh, at the dinner, there just seemed to be a lot of tension surrounding the wedding. I understand. But at the dinner, the father of the bride gets up and starts making a speech in which he talked about how his soon-to-be son-in-law really didn't make enough money and how he really wasn't good enough for his daughter. And then that was kind of it. Uh, and you know what? Things for the weekend just trended downward from there. And their, their wedding, it, was, it, it wasn't great. I wouldn't go back to the wedding. If it was a ride at Disneyland, I wouldn't ride that one again. <laughs> now, most parties or get-togethers don't crash and burn quite as badly as the one we see in Daniel chapter 5. The evening starts off, as you might expect, in a place like Babylon. The king and a thousand of his nobles are throwing a rager but before the night is over, the king will be dead, the empire will fall, and a new world power takes over. That head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, done, gone. Time for a new empire. In verse 1, we find we're no longer reading about Nebuchadnezzar. He's gone. Now we see a king named Belshazzar, and so we've got some catch-up to do, historically speaking at least. A lot has happened since the close of chapter 4. Chapter 4 ends in verse 37. And you get to verse 1 of chapter 5, a ton has happened in the interim there. Let me try to get us up to speed as much as possible. The year in chapter 5, verse 1, is 539 B.C. At least 25 years have passed since the close of chapter 4. Okay, big 25-year gap in between those verses. Nebuchadnezzar is long dead, and as was common in those days, there were a few shakeups in the palace once he was gone. It's a lot of intrigue, a lot of backstabbing. Dr. Charles Ryrie gives a good summary for us. He says, Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. He was succeeded by his son, Emil Marduk. He, in turn, was murdered by his brother-in-law, Nergal, uh, Nergal Sariz. Nergal was succeeded four years later by his son, Labashi Marduk, who was assassinated that same year by a group that included Nabonidus, who was made king. And so that's where we're at as far as the succession of kings. Nabonidus is head king. Wait a minute, what about Belshazzar? Well, Nabonidus was married to one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. They had a son named Belshazzar. And he eventually became co-regent with his dad. Nabonidus was often far and away from Babylon doing all kinds of things, either warring or doing different stuff. And so Belshazzar was there on the throne in the city as co-king, co-regent, keeping the home fires burning. And this explains why later in the text, Belshazzar is going to offer the reward of the position of third ruler in the kingdom. I don't know if you've ever read that and thought, why the third ruler? Who's the second guy? Well, this explains it. His dad was the first ruler. He was the second ruler. He says, okay, now the third ruler in the kingdom will be whoever can interpret the writing on the wall. Now, at this point, what about our man Daniel? Daniel 
is in his 80s at least. He had been taken from Jerusalem around 605 B.C. It's now 539 B.C. So if Daniel was 15 when he was captured, give or take, he'd be 81 years old now. He's no longer actively serving in the empire or the palace. At some point after Nebuchadnezzar's death, he had either retired from his job in public service or he had been pushed out by one of the other kings when they came onto the throne. We're not sure. But either way, he's not working all the time anymore. One other major piece of historical context that is going to be important, the army of the Medes were right outside the gates of Babylon. Uh, I know, at least sort of growing up and seeing this story, as I recall... Oh man, I should have I done more research on this. But when I was a kid, there was a series of Christian cartoons. They were actually pretty good in my little, little gene brain. And it was these four kids who traveled back in time and, would, and got to see the Bible stories. And we used to always have the VHSs in the bookstore and we would watch them and watch them and watch them. Anyway, this was one of the ones that they went to. And it was always kind of like a surprise. Suddenly the Medes were here and nobody knew what was going on. Well, that's not really what happens, right? When an army of thousands of thousands of uh, soldiers and horses and chariots and uh, the weapons of war and all of that, they don't move real quickly, Right, and so the Mede, our, the army of the Medes had been coming. Uh, everybody knew about it. They had been battling with the Babylonian army, and so the Medes were right outside on the other sides of the walls of Babylon. They had been winning battles against the Babylonians and making their way to the capital. They had perhaps even laid siege to the city at this point, or at least they had arrived, and everybody knew it. Now, why was this of so little concern to Belshazzar that he threw a huge party? What's up with that? Well, it's possible that this was an annual festival. Some historians think that this was an annual city festival uh, that everybody participated in to honor one of their weird gods, uh, and that the king wanted to keep morale high despite the fact that the enemy were, uh, was at the gates. And some historians record that, uh, ancient historians record that when the Medes did breach the city walls, there was no fighting because all of the Babylonian soldiers were too drunk to fight. And so that's what some ancient history records. But it also seems really likely that it wasn't just a, well, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Belshazzar's not really acting like that, right? What does he tell? He says, hey, whoever interprets this for me, you're going to be the third ruler in the kingdom, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. I mean, so he's making plans for the future. So it seems like he's pretty confident. Uh, He's not uh, too concerned. And it seems pretty uh, likely that Belshazzar was so confident in Babylon's strength and supplies that it didn't bother him when an invading force showed up. And it's true, the city seemed invulnerable from a human perspective. Her walls were 15 miles square, 300 feet high, made out of brick. They were so thick that four chariots could travel abreast across the top. It's a freeway on top, right? And that's how thick it was. And the people, we're told, had uh, within had enough food and water to last upwards of 20 years. That's how much of a store and supply that they had. And so with bravado, Belshazzar commences his wild bacchanal that night. As Bible students, we know 
At some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, some trust in thick walls and stores of grain. But it is the Lord who is in charge of this world and is in charge of the flow of history. Just always, if you're going to sit down to your television and turn on the news, say this to yourself first. The Lord is in charge of our country and he is in charge of the world and he is in charge of the flow of history, uh, despite what the doomsayers on the news uh, say. Now here's our text. Verse 1, Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. Human beings have an incredible capacity to ignore the warnings and dangers of life. Have you ever done that? Seen a warning sign and say, well, that's not for me. Just kept going. I mean, we just, it's like part of the human condition. Uh, it's why they print warnings on, you know, toxic chemicals and different products. And people are like, nah, this gives cancer to lab rats. Well, I'm not a rat. Poor, 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 right? We have a, a tendency to ignore the warnings and dangers of life. But you know what? Especially in regard to spiritual things, human beings are prone to ignore the spiritual warnings that we receive. I'm sure we've all heard someone say something like, well, when I'm on my deathbed, I'll become a Christian. I'll, I'll you know, make myself right with God. And I don't know if you've noticed, but very few people end up dying in their bed on the night they assume they're going to die. Have you noticed that? That's not how it works. Now here the Babylonians think they're having a swell time while killers were right outside the door and they were going to get in. This was it for Babylon, the last night of the empire. The king and his leadership were getting hammered while Darius was diverting the waters of the Euphrates. You see, the Babylonians had set it up so that the Euphrates would flow in through canals into the city. And they say, see, you can't get rid of our water supply. We've got fresh flowing water. And so Darius the Mede came and he says, here's what we'll do. We'll divert the Euphrates River. So he had his engineers divert the Euphrates River, which caused those canals to dry up. And when the canals dr dried up, suddenly there was a big gap under the walls. And that's how the soldiers all just walked right into the city. And everybody's drunk and passed out. And so no one even fought them. And like that, the capital would fall. And so uh, interesting, interesting thing happening here. Uh, the scene reminds me of how in the Great Tribulation we're told that while the whole world is crashing down in wrath and disaster and judgment and plagues and catastrophes, the unbelievers are going to have a holiday, Jubilee, to celebrate the death of the Lord's two witnesses. You find it there in Revelation chapter 11. Two witnesses have been going around uh, preaching a message from the Lord, also messing some people up who try to, you know, come against them. And so finally... Uh, the Lord allows the Antichrist to overcome the two witnesses and they are killed. Their bodies are left there in the streets and we're told in the book of the Revelation that despite everything that's happening, you know, water's turning to blood and plagues and all these horrible things are happening, it says that the people of the earth, the unbelievers, get together and have a party and they send gifts to one another to celebrate the death of the two witnesses. Uh, and you'd think that they would say, man, we, you know, we need to repent. This God keeps sending us messages and, and, you know, but they don't. By the way, here, archaeologists have uncovered a great hall in the ruins of Babylon that would easily accommodate a party of this size. Sometimes uh, scoffers will look at a thing like that, a thousand of his nobles. You couldn't do that. Uh, and they found a great hall that uh, is sizable enough to accommodate this party. And as usual, human research is always playing catch up with the truth that God has already revealed. Verse 2, while he tasted the wine... 
Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine, praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. To clarify, uh, when the text calls Nebuchadnezzar his father, the word doesn't have to be defined or used the way we use it uh, in the English language, right? Uh, in, this, uh, in these languages, it can mean father or grandfather or just ancestor predecessor. So just some clarification there. In the ample stores of Babylon's riches, these vessels from the temple of the Lord stood out in magnificence and rarity. And in the ample flood of his unholiness, Belshazzar in his drunken delirium thought they would make the most impressive chalices for his party. He felt it would be good to mock the God that Nebuchadnezzar had come to honor. Instead, he magnified the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron. You'd think they'd be petitioning the God of war at this point, but no, instead they made merry, unaware of their impending doom. These partygoers illustrate for us the fact that oftentimes people don't realize just how lost they are, how close they are to the end, spiritually speaking. And, you know, we're told that this is the life where your eternity is determined, right? Uh, it is appointed for man or woman to die once and then comes judgment. And many people, the average person out there, they don't realize how lost they are. In 2015, two California hikers went missing for four days in Southern California in the wilderness down there. After running out of their meager water supplies, they became separated, started hallucinating. 1.1 of the hikers had to fight off an animal. She doesn't really remember a lot about it. When she was finally found, her mouth was so full of dirt that the first man to reach her was afraid she would choke if he gave her any water at all. She would later say this in an interview, I honestly didn't even know I was missing. I didn't know I was gone. I didn't know anything was going on. I thought I was in a big dream. Now, that particular story has a happy ending. Both the hikers survived. They were rescued, restored to their life, made healthy again. Great. Have feel good story. Uh, but the average unbeliever is in that state. They don't even know that they're lost and that they're moments away from, from losing their lives, not just for a day or two or for four days or being lost and then picked up, but they're going to lose their lives for eternity. Uh, they are out there in the spiritual wilderness held captive by the devil, unaware that they're a few breaths away from an eternity in hell. And so uh, we just need to keep that in mind. While we're going out there to share the truth and to love others, we need to realize that lost people are really lost. And a lot of times they don't even realize that they're lost. Now in these verses, we're twice reminded that these vessels had been set apart for holy service unto the Lord. And you know what? So are you. Great descriptor of who you are in Christ Jesus. Now, we're not made of gold or silver. We're of much greater value than that. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That's us. That the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And then in 2 Timothy, he said that we are meant to be vessels for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. And so you are a precious vessel. 
a glorious vessel, something that stands out in comparison to all of the other uh, lives out there in the world. You shine like a star because of the power of the Lord. You're set apart for the Lord. You are meticulously fashioned by the Lord. You are a prized possession in the Lord's kingdom. And you're meant to be filled with holiness and power, useful in God's hands for good work and for honor. And so uh, if we think about this devotionally and these vessels taken from uh, the temple into the storehouse of Nebuchadnezzar and now into this gross party, the question is this, if my life is a cup, is a vessel, uh, what God am I toasting today with my life? And what's filling me up? Whose table am I serving and am I served upon? Uh, good questions for each of us to pose to ourselves tonight. Verse 5, in the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the part of the hand that wrote. That hall which archaeologists uncovered that I mentioned before was also found to have plaster walls. Just a fun tidbit for us tonight. So far no one has said, there's the mene mene tekelu farsin, but uh, kind of a fun thing. Here we learn that God attends your parties. He invites himself. Uh, you don't have to send God an invitation. He's going to invite himself to your party and to your get-together. He's going to invite yourself, as we saw last week uh, in the last few passages, he invites himself into your private chamber as you're thinking about things in your own room or uh, he's listening and he's watching. But same goes to your parties here. The action of Belshazzar taking these temple vessels and using them in such a carnal and wicked way was the final straw, the last drop of iniquity that caused the cup of God's wrath to spill over. No more long-suffering, no more patience. Judgment was going to come that night. The message written on the wall was not one of hope or not one of, hey, do this and everything will be okay. It was a message of doom and only doom. And doom not in a generation, not in a year like Nebuchadnezzar had last chapter, not in 40 days like Nineveh had, but before the sun rose, it was like, hey, it's over, you're done, Babylon's done. Now wait just a minute is what I say at this point. What about the many decades of wickedness perpetrated by Nebuchadnezzar? Really? After one party here, what, what's the difference here? Wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's gold image even more blasphemous than using these cups? What about chapter 4 and all the things that Nebuchadnezzar said and did? Why did he seemingly get chance after chance in comparison to Belshazzar? Uh, it, it seems there are times in the Bible where you see kind of these characters or these stories sort of put up next to each other and you say, wait a minute, how come this guy this happened and this guy that happened? How come King Saul messes up, doesn't kill all the animals, and the Lord comes and says, you're done being king. You're just done. And David's over here, like murdering people and committing adultery, and the Lord's like, I'm going to give you an everlasting kingdom. What's up with that? And all we can say is that we don't know all of God's calculations, for lack of a better word. It's an insufficient term. But listen, we don't know what God knows. His ways are beyond finding out, we're told in the scripture. But here's, well, we don't know why Saul seemed to get in trouble faster and worse in some sense than David did, at least from our perspective, right? Here's what we do know. We do know some things for sure. We know that God is long-suffering and patient. We know that he is merciful. We know that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, whether that's Saul, whether that's David, whether that's Nebuchadnezzar, whether that's Belshazzar, right? God never looked down on any human being and said, I don't want to save that person. 
all the way to the end of their lives, he was wanting to save those individuals, right? And so we know those things to be true. He's proven them to be true. And he's even proven them to be true among the most undeserving and wicked of people. Men like Nebuchadnezzar prove it to us. Or speaking of the Amorites in Genesis, the Lord said this at one point. He says, hey, listen, I can't send you to the land yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. I'm waiting it out. Maybe they'll turn it around. And so he demonstrates his long-suffering and his mercy and his patience toward a people who were absolutely wicked, uh, wanted nothing to do with him. Even toward his own people, Israel and Judah, he said something similar. In Ezekiel 9, he says, hey, their iniquity's not full yet, so we're waiting for judgment to fall. But we also know, in addition to God being long-suffering and patient, full of grace and full of mercy, we also know that God is just. And he does not just turn a blind eye to sin and say, well, I'm going to pretend like that's not happening. God doesn't do that. He is just. And eventually, mercy expires and judgment comes. And when God pours out his wrath, we can be sure that it is done with justice. Now, we don't understand all of the particulars. And we sometimes can compare things and we think, wait a minute, why this, not that? And we simply don't know everything. Listen, Psalm 9.8 says this, he rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. And that's just true about God. And so I don't know. I don't know why Nebuchadnezzar, it seems, got more chances than Belshazzar. But what we know to be true is that God is full of mercy. God is full of grace. He is willing to save a man like Nebuchadnezzar who is worse than Belshazzar from our perspective, right? And God says, yeah, I'll save him if he turns his heart toward me but that at some point, mercy does expire and judgment pours out. I don't know if any of you guys watch Survivor and they do all these challenges, trying to, games and things like that, all that kind of thing. They have this one game that they've done a bunch of times over the years. And what will happen is they'll have like a, some sort of basin, right? And they have to fill the basin with water from the ocean. They, they go fill up a pail, run back, fill the basin, and they're going back and forth. And eventually, if the basin is full enough, it will topple over and spill out, right? The catch is the pail they're given has a bunch of holes in it. And so they have to run as fast as they can. They're just getting little bits, little bits, little bits, and all this stuff is leaking out. And so we can't always understand the calculations, but the way the Lord describes his judgment or his wrath in a variety of ways in the Bible, whether it was towards Israel and Judah when they were deep in idolatry, whether it was toward the Canaanites for 400 years while he was reaching out to them, whether it was, you know, these other examples, Lord's like, hey, listen, the cup of their iniquity is not full yet, but uh, that night, that was it. Belshazzar said, bring those things out. Let's mock the God of Israel. And the Lord said, done. It's full. This thing is going to spill over, and it's over now. And so that night, the iniquity of, iniquity of not just Belshazzar, but all of Babylon was full, and the end had come for them. Verse 6, the king's countenance changed. His thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened. and His knees knocked against each other. The Lord was able to get Belshazzar's attention even in his drunken stupor, but boy, did he sober up in a hurry. He didn't know what the words meant, 
but obviously it wasn't good. That's what, I, that's what I like about this scene. He didn't think it was like a congratulations message from God, right? So there, it's interesting. He's praising the God of gold and silver. He's praising the God of wood and stone. He's all fat and happy with himself, right? Suddenly, a divine hand starts writing a message, and he thinks, well, that's not good. Uh, it just shows the emptiness of these uh, religions that are apart from the Lord how, you know, these adherents of so-called the Babylonian religion, they knew it was empty. They, they weren't, his gods didn't speak. Daniel's going to point that out. He's like, hey, your gods don't know things. Your gods don't speak. Your gods don't listen or hear or anything. And Belshazzar knew that. So he sees this message and uh, it obviously wasn't good. He was convicted, exposed to his guilt, and about as scared as a person can be. Verse 7. So the king cried aloud to bring the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, King spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around his neck. He shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came. They could not read the writing or make known the king its interpretation. And King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed again, and his lords were astonished. You know, at this point, my question is, what are these guys good for? Every time these guys show up, they just can't do anything. This is your job, man. Like, can you interpret dreams? Not really. Can you interpret this writing? No. What are you good for? What are we paying you for, all these guys? They're never any help in any of these stories. I mean, we joke about the weathermen getting it wrong, right? But this is a whole other level. This is their whole job to interpret this stuff and to explain to the king these sorts of things and none of them could do it, not one of them. Each and every one of them went up to the wall, took a look and said, nope, the next one, each and every one. They kept going up and they didn't know what it was saying. But you know, it reminds us that worldly wisdom and worldly training only go so far. There is truth and understanding and discernment that is found in God and cannot be found elsewhere. This is why in a time of crisis, you want a spirit-filled, Bible-believing Christian around. Because people know inherently we need to go to that person to get some answers. This is why after a big national crisis, something like September 11th, church attendance swells the following Sundays. Because even people who don't follow God, care about God in their regular lives, when something terrible happens, what do they do? They go, we need to find some answers, and they go to Christians for that. You've probably experienced this in your own life, either on one side of the issue or the other, where something happens either at your workplace or in someone's personal life, and suddenly this person that never wants to talk to you about this God stuff, suddenly they're coming to you and saying, what happens after we die? Hey, weren't you the person that were just telling an anti-Christian joke two weeks ago in the break room? Yeah, but now I want to know. What does the Bible say about X, Y, and Z? And it's because people, all of us are hardwired to seek out God and, and to understand that there are some answers to life that are only found in God. And so our encouragement as Christians is be that spirit-filled, Bible-believing Christian wherever you are. So that when the people come to you, you can say, actually, I can tell you the truth. I can explain some of these things for you. I can point you toward uh, the way, the truth, and the life. In Belshazzar's case, there was someone who could point him in the right direction. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. 
And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Says in Belshazzar's wife, uh, this is the queen mother, uh, based on her kind, belabored, comforting words to him, it's kind of cute. Your, your dad, your father, not dad, your father, the king, your king, the king Nebuchadnezzar, your father, that predecessor, can't tell if it's just like a mom or grandma being sweet or if just because he's so drunk she's trying to get it across to him. But uh, based upon the way she speaks and her opinion of Daniel, we can assume this is either Nebuchadnezzar's widow or his daughter, Belshazzar's mom. We're not sure which one it is. She hadn't been at the party and clearly she had more of Nebuchadnezzar's perspective when it came to Daniel and the God of Israel, right? She's not at this party. She's not getting hammered drunk with everybody else. And she shows up and she says, let me tell you about this servant of the God of Israel. So, great. And I find her actions here to be a great encouragement. Because she didn't know the answer or what to do, right? She didn't come in and say, here, I can tell you what it says. She didn't know. Uh, She was limited in her understanding and her belief, obviously. But she said, listen, here's what you can do. Call Daniel. He's a spiritual man. He knows things. His God speaks to him. And so I think for us, it's an encouragement. Maybe you don't know what to say in a situation, or maybe you don't know what answer to give to some tough life question, but guess what? You do know other spirit-filled Christians who are maybe further along in their relationship with the Lord than you. And you do know how to go to God's word to see what the Lord has revealed and said. You know those things. And so even if you aren't sure the answer Don't fake it. Just help direct people to where they can find the answer. Connect people with other spirit-filled believers. Show them how to get to God's word. Act like the queen mother did here. We're going to leave off there for tonight with Belshazzar week at the knees. A question that came to my mind was this. It's been 25 years since chapter 4. What has Daniel been doing all this time? Uh, We don't know, but we do know that the testimony of his faithfulness had spread far and wide. The prophet Ezekiel references Daniel as a profoundly righteous man. He compares him to Noah and Job at one point, and he calls him one of the wisest men ever. In the first four chapters of the book, we saw how he lived as a young man. In chapter 6 and beyond, we'll see how he lived as an old man. So we can be sure that these middle years were the same. He was a man of prayer, a man of integrity, a man of thankfulness, a man who allowed God to use him in his regular life to whatever degree the Lord wanted, He reminds me a little bit of these golden vessels in a way. He was set apart for the Lord, but finding himself in some far corner of the world. But despite being there, he could still shine and serve and remain holy. He could still stand out as that thing that belonged to the God of of heaven. Perhaps you feel like you're on a shelf somewhere in some wicked Babylon, uh, that you are out of place and just lost in a dark world. Well, you know, the Lord is with you just as he was with Daniel. And you are of much more value than some golden cup. You are the Lord's masterpiece, meant to be filled with power. You're a vessel made for honor, sanctified, useful in the hands of the master, prepared for every good work. That's what the Bible says. It's not me saying that's what the Bible says about you. You're the Daniel wherever you find yourself. Whether you're old or young or somewhere in between, 
You can be God's man or God's lady wherever you are, filled with the Holy Spirit who has been given as your helper, your sustainer, so that you can shine light in the dark, bring truth to the world, and be part of rescuing people who don't even know that they're lost. Amen?